0: Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges
1: to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-getters feature straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world,
0: just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us
1: as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Go-Getters podcast. I'm Joe Buck, and today I'd like to welcome Jeremy Lataw, Associate Professor in the Department of Journalism and Communication. Jeremy's work and research sits at the intersection of social media, community, social action, and political engagement. He's published work about Twitter, mobile video, participatory journalism, and digital communities in notable academic journals. He has been awarded the Frank Cook Fellowship for his research, teaching, and mentoring work at Lehigh and the Lehigh Early Career Award for Distinguished Teaching. His dissertation is about digital communities and virtual civic life. He is well-known in the digital journalism community for his blog and his presence on Twitter. He is at Jeremy Littal. That's L I. T T A U, and we'll put that in our inside the episode page. He has recently been a public voice in the conversation around generative artificial intelligences like Chat GPT. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's um, quite timely, yes, given the progression of uh, and the uh, infiltration of chat GPT into our world. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But before, I'd like to talk about your time before Lehigh, if that's okay. I've come to understand you had a journalism career before coming to Lehigh. Could you tell us a little bit about that time and then what prompted you to get your PhD and and join the academy?
0: I spent about 10 years as a working journalist. Um, Post-college, I entered the field in 97, just as a lot of the digital transformation was starting to happen. Um, My my undergraduate education did not have a lot of digital in it um, in the early 90s. Uh, most of my, my digital chops were self-taught um, just for my own curiosity. But pretty quickly right away in this in the field, I started seeing that they that things were changing and the, the ways in which I was being trained by some of my first mentors was not going to hold um, in the long run. So I started taking on more digital tasks. By about 2002, a couple things changed for me. First, I'd started adjuncting at a local community college in Los Angeles and, um, and then at my alma mater, and um, that, I really kind of liked being in the classroom a lot um, and thought, well, it may be something I want to do someday. So I started thinking about grad school. But, you know, at the same time, we are, we're starting to see just some soft layoffs in our newsroom, um, you know, positions that were vacated and were not filled. They weren't cutting newsroom staff quite yet, but – we could see it coming, the digital transformation company. I, they, I tell people my watershed moment was uh, I logged into a site called Craigslist in 2003 for the first time. I was looking for tickets to a San Francisco Giants game. And um, realizing that all these free classifieds <laughs> where you could you could find anything, what used to be a pay for in a newspaper um, and constructed about 25% of their ad revenue a regular newspaper, it was going to destroy us. Yeah. So... I I went back to grad school in 2004 with the idea about retooling and when I saw at least a digital wave coming. And I knew I needed a lot more formal training in that, maybe some, maybe some internships and things like that. And I just stayed, I, I fell into a citizen journalism project my first semester there at Missouri. And, um, I loved it. I loved being uh, the participatory side. I saw social media coming. Um, you know, I logged on to Facebook for the first time in 2005 and you could just see some threads coming together. as like, oh, this disruption is coming to m- this, to my beloved journalism space, and also at the same time, these digital players are going to transform even what we think we need to pivot to. Um, so I I kind of carried that forward with the PhD with the idea that I'm going to be in the classroom with an idea that my students are going to come out being experimental and curious. That they would allow me to, to change as the and ride the waves of change in my industry it was was hard driven by my own curiosity, like my desire to tinker and play. Um, off hours with technology and things like that, and I'm one of my students to to adopt that as a mentality, and I felt like I could do more good in the classroom than like, remaking my career at age 30, you know, <laughs> um, and and so that's what I decided to do.
2: You mentioned, uh, you know, you, you during your. Ph.D. work and, and studies and program that you had envisioned, you know, finding a place where your students could be curious and engaging and exploratory um, uh, without leading the witness, I would suggest you found the right place here at Lehigh. That's exactly the kind of classroom experience that we describe and, uh, and the alumni tell us about all the time. I had options. Lehigh felt like the best fit for that. Well, um, I was so
0: I, I have not been. Invalidated in that that sense. Back when I interviewed you in two thousand eight, um, I every day I, I walk in going, I have the most opportunity to to do good here. So,
2: well, uh, we're glad you're here. I'm curious through the classroom lens. How, you know, how has journalism and communications shifted in the digital age?
0: It requires a lot more flexibility and kind of a nimble spirit. The fundamentals have not changed in journalism. That you're still you're still about gathering information and um, gathering facts and verifying what you can and only going to press with what you know you can verify is true there's a mission driven aspect to it as well it's uh, you know you're you're serving the public interest you're asking questions of people in authority and power so that hasn't really particularly changed but you know when i when i came into college in 2000 sorry, 1997 i'm really dating myself here um you know there were basically three ways to tell a story radio television and print yeah you know and then web if you want to take text and put it on the web um And now the opportunities for journalists who want to do other types of things I think has grown a great deal. And in a lot of cases where I was a specialist, mostly based on my writing and a little bit of design, I mean now our students are being asked when they graduate to be able to to publish in print and also be able to do podcasts and also be able to do video work on the side for the web and um, to have social media presences, which is a whole other type of orientation about how you engage with the public. They're they're asking a lot more versatility of these these students than they used to. And that, that has changed. And it's also made the business model uncertain because the advertising has, has kind of just like gone from thing to thing to thing and has created a lot of instability. But I do think that there's still – if you're a good storyteller and you're good at your craft, there's, there's work out there. And it's it can be very rewarding and successful work. But it does require, I think, a, a type of kind of flexible mentality of, in terms of how you approach your job. Fundamentals, again, have not changed at yeah. all. Um, but but the kinds of work you do and the way it works out does.
2: You know, your students today, when they come into your classroom, you know, what do they come in knowing or, or, or not knowing? What what surprises your students today? Um, you know, it's funny. They're heavy users of
0: media. Um, they're kind of mislabeled digital natives. I'm not sure I really believe in that idea, um, but I do believe in what it kind of describes, which is that you've got a generation that's coming through right now that has not known a world without the internet and and to some degree has not known a world without social media. So their orientation in terms of how they think about media, you know, they're not um, linear TV watchers, for example. They don't sit yeah. down in front of network TV and satellite and cable for the most part. They stream a lot.
2: Is, is your, excuse me, is your version to, the, to digital native? Is that, um, you know, the old guy saying, get off my lawn? Is that you justifying that you are... Um, not a digital native, but you're as a deaf and as current as your no, students or, no. or, 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 or t- tell me why yeah, you, don't, you don't believe in the concept.
0: I don't, I don't like it because I think it it is intended to describe a type of um, aptitude with digital media. That's not necessarily true. There was, there was just kind of this moment that was happening in media where it's like, we just get some digital natives to run our social media or to do this kind of thing or that. And it's just an assumption that they know instinctively how to use those tools for the purpose of creation rather than consumption. Yeah. To me, it's a bit of a pejorative on them I, that right. I think assumes too much. Okay. Um, I, so, they, you know, they come at least knowing how to consume and they understand these spaces. But what what surprises them to your question is a lot of them don't know the the history of the field. So my intro course usually tends to be the ones that blows their mind the most weirdly, even though it's the introduction to my field, because we get into the, some of the history and the, that they realize that, you know, the, the, the current favorite TikTok, for example, has its roots that go back in some case decades um, also telling them the story about media economics, I think is usually something that they've never heard before. I mean, I think it surprises them to mm-hmm. hear that a lot of our media has been traditionally ad- advertising supported and that the big the big uncertainty right now is that we're we really just don't know how to harness those dollars anymore. Those are the kinds of things that I think gives them a little bit of background that when they go through their studies in my department, yeah you know that they they take that with them that they they start to think about the economics of power and and how that plays out in the, their chosen field.
2: What surprises you? Um,
0: I love Gen Z so much. I really do. I think that they are um, they are very practical and pragmatic. They're problem solvers. Um, and it doesn't surprise me so much as it just delights me. Um, they're they are just a great group to teach. I think that what surprises me is I get paid to do this. Um, that I get paid to engage with, with those students on an everyday basis. The, the growth that they are capable of um, when you put them in an environment like this and you give them every type of opportunity under the sun, it feels like. Um, to watch what they do with that, that's where they really dazzle. Yeah, And I, I wish everybody could have that experience of seeing them on a four-year journey. I mean, you may not want to teach for a living, but like just to, to meet them and watch them grow, I think is
2: a pretty, pretty incredible thing. It's powerful and it reminds us of why we do what we do every day as well yeah. uh, in, in our work for Lehigh. Uh, I'd like to um, pivot to the topic of, of the day, of the minute, uh, actually, is is generative AI and 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 tools like um, Chat GPT if we can. But before we do that, I wonder if you can help our audience and the difference between Chat GPT, Dali, Bard, Bing, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, Ernie just showed up somewhere. What makes them different? Could you help give us a primer on what these tools are?
0: I think what you're you're mostly describing a lot of those products is what we call um, consumer-facing artificial intelligence, and so um, these are the kinds of things that um, have been available and unleashed to the public um, through the for the, uh, the the lens of product.
2: Um, unleashed, a good word. We're yeah. going to come back and, to and, that
0: word and, in a minute. And it's a very important <laughs> term because we have no choice in this matter. Um, there are other types of automated um, kind of programming intelligence that have been operating in uh, online for years now i mean like if you, you want to think about something as so basic as an algorithm for example is probably a very rudimentary version of that because it's something that kind of controls background process in terms of like what you see in a social network for example but you know tools like ChatGPT, which really caught fire that's, that's november or so i started seeing it in my twitter timeline Every people just posting screenshots of this thing um is a what we call a, a type of um, product that uses prediction to produce um, answers to questions and i would probably fit like the consumer space into a couple different buckets. I would say text, um, generative text, generative images. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dolly uh, mid journey uh, would be with two, two examples of that um, where you can, you can type in text queries and you can give, you can get images that basically fill in whatever your mind imagines in terms of text. Um, there's, we, we are seeing um, artificial intelligence video and, and synthetic audio as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say probably if you can think of a major media type of type of area, such as like movies, television, film, you know, thinking about the visual, the audio space, the text space, they probably have some sort of AI component to it. Um, the one that's getting a lot of play right now is, is you mentioned, ChatGPT, mm-hmm. um, mostly because I think that journalists got obsessed with it. And once journalists get obsessed with something, they cover it a lot. Um, so it started to have its moment last year. OpenAI um, is a project that, um, that, that released ChatGPT to the public. Um, it's, it's something that's been in the works for, uh, that what we got last November was ChatGPT 3. Um, so it's been in the works for several years now, but we've seen, seen competitors rise up, you know? So Google released Bard about a month ago, Bing, Microsoft released Bing chat. I think it's important to note that, that this is where I think we're like a fundamental distinction about GPT is really important. Bing is using ChatGPT's engine. That The way I would look at it is this is that these are programs, right? Yes. And so, But you can copy those programs, um, and you can you can make them do different types of things. And so, like, ChatGPT has been fed a certain library of information, just a whole bucket load of text, right, and some very specific rules about how it operates. operate. And so it's going to behave a certain way. Okay. And Bing Chat takes that same exact engine, copies it, stuff it with a different library, stuff it with different rules, and all of a sudden you get different types of answers. Um, in this case, Bing, for example, will crawl the web. It will... It'll search things that are online It can search the news uh, and give you much more current answers, whereas GPT's library has famously have been cut off about September
2: 2021. Oh, so, so chat GBT is working off of a fixed data set, if yeah. I can think about it that way. And Bing is more dynamic. That library is constantly being added to yeah. by the nature of web content. Right. Is that is that that's a- That's a
0: very accurate I mean, we'd be like talking to somebody who's learning stopped in 2021. And th- I think that's really important because that kind of dictates a little bit of your use, right? I mean, GBT is really good at historical knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Or Or things that are kind of boilerplate and not necessarily depending on current events or current current thinking, yeah. um, best practices that are kind of emerging, um, whereas Bing is much better at real-time information. Um, and But it still has some of the same advantages of GPT in that regard, too, because it can mine older, older information, yeah. too. But so, I think it's important to remember that these are prediction engines because yeah. what you're getting is basically the AI's prediction of what it thinks you want. And that's a really, really important distinction because... It means that it's playing to the audience in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's giving you what it thinks you desire, not necessarily what it thinks. And so, that's why I've tried hard not to anthropomorphize these technologies in that
2: sense. Yeah. Gosh, I have um, well one of many kind of existential questions. Like, you know, you know, self-centered humans always define like original text or original images as those created by humans. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 being is writing something for you or, or predicting, you know, writing or, or Dolly is, are those original texts or original images? Has is, is it changed the definition of what's original?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, this is, this might be a belated answer to your question about what it surprises me the most. And I think one of the ways I've changed the most as an educator in 14 years is I've started to question the idea about originality. Um, and what it really means to produce something original. We we I think we almost give lip service to the phrase that we're standing on the shoulders of giants in education, you know. And but we don't really really explore what that means. And that is that there is no there is no present knowledge without past knowledge. We are constantly building on something else. And in some sense, anything we produce that's original is somewhat derivative of what came before. Now there are moments of transformation, obviously. And, and there, I'm I'm not arguing against creativity and originality. But I do think that we almost overrate how original something is, you know. And so, when you know, I, I did this with, with one of my students in my class about a month ago. We used um, a Dolly to to generate images that from their imagination. So I had one student type in a query into a, a panda eating a bowl of soup on a raft, in a watercolor style, and it, honest to God, delivered something. And she looked at this, and she is a journalism major with an art minor, and she's going. It would have taken me two weeks to do something this good. And, you know, the idea is, is that they it's giving something that it's, it's, it's referencing ideas about panda, raft, soup, you know, watercolor style and generating what it thinks you want. But there is a creative aspect to that that um, I, I would call original mm-hmm. because it definitely comes from a type of imagination where you could mentally picture something and, and put that to paper when you, or canvas when you paint but why wouldn't directing a computer to generate something that roughly mirrors what's in your head be an act of creativity as well? So it's, it's a really tough question. Yeah. Um, and my student had a similar existential crisis about their education because of that, you know, and, and because they have to think about, you know, what is, what is all this worth then? Yeah. Um, and we have to deal
2: with that. And that affects, you know, uh, the classroom, education, labor. I, you know, I, I'm, we're going to delve into some of those but but at a high level you know, where are you on the continuum of this is the greatest thing humanity's ever seen to unplug everything and prep your bunker you know i mean w- you know where how should we feel about this this um this movement that we are currently um maybe can't keep up with but certainly in the middle of i'm very much not
0: a believer that we can stop the progress of innovation, even if it's not innovation, I mean, there's there's bad innovations and good. I, I'm a student of McLuhan, who wrote a lot of a lot about interactive media in the early 1960s that was prescient. So Marshall McLuhan wrote War, War and Peace in the Global Village, um, and he had a very famous phrase from that that gets quoted a lot: "Medium is the message." And one of the things that he was pointing out about this, he was writing about television, way pre-internet, but this idea about a global village um, being made possible by interconnected media technologies. And what McLuhan was saying when he said the meeting and the messages, he says, you have to consider technology based on its social effects. OK, so he used the, the image of the light bulb. The light bulb is a construction of engineering, right? It's got metal and glass and wire and gas injected into it and it's able to use these technologies, harnessing the power of electricity and turn it on. You can make this entire thing work. But he said that, you know, we'd be we'd be foolish to overly focus on the technology and not. The social effect of all of a sudden illuminating a dark space, you know, that when I turn a light on, all of a sudden I can see things with new eyes. I can see faces and, and dark corners of rooms that I was able to see before. I, I'm very influenced by this idea then that we, we should critique these technologies and we should think really critically about what they are and are not good for. Mm-hmm. Um, but – but that, that's a separate question than, you know, should we get rid of them? You know, some of, these, some of these letters that have been circulating about, you know, stopping AI development for six months, which is only going to disadvantage the United States um, because it's not going to stop other countries from Somebody doing it. Somebody else is going to do it. Yeah. Right. Someone's going to do it. Um, and, and so and, instead of, you know, a, 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 an ethical uh, application of AI, yeah. a social – a pro-social way of, um, of deploying AI in society, yeah. I think are much more important questions. And so I'm not – I'm not. I'm not going to be a techno utopian in this sense, and think that these are going to save humanity and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. I, I also don't think it's going to destroy us. I do think it's going to change us, though. I mean, the technology innovation is transformative in, in, in itself in that sense. Yeah.
2: What role does higher ed play in this? How do these tools affect teaching and learning and student and the value of of education? I know there's a lot there, but but you live in this space every day yeah. uh, as a faculty member here at Lehigh. Um, you know, how does a place like Lehigh lead uh, the discussion in this front?
0: I think a place like Lehigh is perfectly situated to lead on this discussion because the kinds of work we do are not set up to merely talk about the technical aspects of AI mm-hmm. that are grounding in the liberal arts, makes us situated to have other types of conversations that should not be considered tangential to these technologies, but integral um, in terms of how we deploy them. And so. You know, humanities ask questions about ethics, right, and history and justice and, um, you know, uneven outcomes that I think are really important. They, they get philosophical. I mean, we, we are going to have to have a conversation at some point about where these things can become sentient. We can turn to the humanities to have questions about what it is to be human yeah. you know, in a world full of automation. That crisis is coming, I think, sooner than we think. Um you know, it it wasn't just because of my my art minor student, in my class, who's having a, a having real questions about what it means to create things, when a computer can do something that roughly imitates what they would have produced on their own. You know, um, they can also ask questions about law. You know, um, what it means to feed these these engines full of work that other people without any sort of copyright licensing and things like that. If I, if I was doom and gloom about anything, it would probably be this. Yeah. Um, the it, it's it's not the technologies, it's how we wield it that, mm-hmm. that really worries me the most. And I think that the university has to figure out how to solve because, you know, we've, we've seen this this trend. You know, I meet parents coming to visit Lehigh and a lot of them are asking about return on investment and, you know, how's my kid gonna get a job in X field? And now more than ever, I look at them and go, that film may not exist in five years. I mean, I draw my own experience as a journalist. Um, we have in 20 years in print journalism lost about 90 percent of the workforce. It's an industry that's been completely transformed by digital, and you know that is a that is an existential crisis for just one industry. And I the reason I I, I talk about this with my students is because a lot of our work in the United States, in particular, I think, is built around um, feeding our identity. You know, and that is that like, journals deeply identify with the mission orientation of that field, and so you know the idea about being a truth teller in the public service, you know, and kind of a accountability force in society, you know, and, and we build kind of our, our sense of self around that job and we invest a lot into it. And then to see that, that field just upended and your job disappear almost overnight in just one sector, it, it has major social effects, you know, where you've got people who have to pivot to entirely new careers, jobs in PR that they would not have wanted to do that the journalists are famous for making fun of PR people. Um, and all of a sudden, a lot of my friends from the newspaper business aren't yeah. doing those jobs in PR. It has real uh, – my, my real more worry about this is about the social fabric. It's yeah. not about the technologies. It's that what happens when every industry is going to be touched by this stuff. I mean short-term, medium-term, long-term, however we want to call it. I was just reading a story this morning. IBM's putting a pause on all HR hiring over the next five years as they start considering where AI can come in and do those jobs that humans have done. Yeah. Okay? And so the people who get softly laid off from these jobs – Um, are not going to be able to find an HR job if this goes well, right? Um, They're going to have to find a different field. And so, you know, our our identity being built around dedication to our work, right? And then you take that across all the industries combined, um, where they're completely disrupted by these technologies. And what you end up with, I think, is a real loss of identity. And it rips at the social fabric in ways that I think are really difficult for us to to grasp because – We can't think about education as vocation, right? Vocational training, because that's a real mistake. If I had gone, had that kind of education in undergrad, I would not have been able to pivot when newspapers started to collapse. And I do think that the flexibility of a liberal arts degree then allows us to think about something beyond that. AI's deployment will cause new types of industries to emerge, new opportunities for people. um, And our ability to be flexible and nimble again (laughs) um, is gonna be partially built on that education. But we have to think, I think about care and this is this is why I'm back to my doomsday is because I worry a lot that we don't really think about how to care for each other as much as we ought to. Mm. You know that that this is going to take a large scale effort to help people retrain, rethink about what their career looks like and and find a new sense of identity in different kinds of work that they never imagined before. And that is not an easy easy lift.
2: Back to Leah, you mentioned a moment ago about the the humanities and I've heard you say um, in other settings, that um, maybe resurgence is my word, not yours, but but that that um, a possibility of of all of this is a, a refocusing on and uh, acknowledging of the importance of the humanities. Are those fields? You know, when you think about communication, journalism, the social sciences, literature, philosophy, are 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 those fields equipped for for this? Are they are they are they ready? Can can they seize the moment uh, in in general or at a place like Lehigh?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think at Lehigh I, I'm really optimistic about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a real strong digital humanities effort here on campus that I think is incredible, um, and I think a lot of those folks are, are already thinking about these these types of technologies. You know, the humanities forces us to ask really important, deep questions about it, what what it means, what it all means, right? And um, the existential crisis created by automation and um, generative AI. Is going to have us ask those same types of questions of ourselves. You know what it means to be a human being and what it means to function in a world where a lot of that work, that the grunt work, is being done for us. Um, but I think deeper questions about what creativity means. I mean, that's a I've never had to ask a student to define creativity before. You know, um, I don't when I see it. <laughs> you know, and I know I know when a student is
2: is deploying everything that they've got into it. Um, but but the watercolor you described could could fall under the definition of creativity, right? Yeah, right? And so, The student used a tool right. to create uh, an idea that that he or she had in their mind. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, th- to me, that's that's the exciting future for this is that. The humanities are built around asking questions, and the best types of AI outcomes I've been able to generate with my students have been about asking really good questions. Yeah. The qualitative methodologies that are built into the humanities, I think, are, are ripe for a kind of repurposing toward, toward this. I see. The, the people who are going to succeed in a world full of AI are going to be able to ask really, really great questions to get the most out of it. The, the, the example I think you've heard me say before is – that, you know, we often think about like in a movie, for example, the actors being the face of the movie, but really it's the, the people doing the directing who know how to get and coach the most out of the talent, you know, to put people in the right places, to hire the right people for costumes and designs and sets. Um, and they're directing an entire effort. And I think that directing to me is the role of the future that it's it's your, your job is to figure out how to qu- ask a question of an AI and then ask more questions <laughs> to yeah. keep asking follow up questions. I'll just give you a real quick example. We played a game called um, AI Mad Libs in one of my courses, and I gave them a predisposed sentence that had blanks in it. It was a blank um, sitting on blank in blank, okay? And I had the students kind of give me some answers. So they, we came up with a ruby sitting on the, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles, and I asked Dolly to generate that image. And what it gave me was nine pictures of a woman sitting on the Walk of Fame. Now, they, I asked them before this to picture in their mind what they think they were going to see, and they were all thinking ruby the gem. The gem, right? yeah. yeah? And so we stopped and talked about this and said, wait, okay, so does this match what you think now? <laughs> Why? Um, because our questions weren't precise enough. And so, you know, we started thinking about like the, you know, first of all, I think it's humbling because it makes you realize that we take a lot for granted when we say words. Even when I said the word Ruby, you probably were thinking Gem. I was. I, I certainly
2: was. I was, yeah.
0: So we tweaked the query in the second ask to be Ruby Gem. Mm-hmm. Um and we so we, we asked ourselves like, okay, is it that word? It's also sitting on, right? The the, the AI was interpreting sitting on as a human act right. and generating an image of a human based on that. And that's a small example of this. Yep. But I think some of the some of the exercises we've been doing in my classes have been about dialogue with these things. You know, so you're not um, you're not asking one question and just getting the answer and that's it. And almost never have I experienced a situation with an AI where the first answer I got was satisfactory in any sense of the word. You have to keep asking at it. Yeah. And you have to have a methodology and kind of a rigorous mindset for asking that. I think the humanities is perfectly positioned because we teach those types of skills in them. even in journalism. I mean, we teach our students the art of skeptical question asking, you know, that you you have your list of questions, the difference between a beginning student and a graduating student is the beginning student comes to me for an interview and they've got their list of 10 questions and they ask me 10 questions. My seniors listen to my answers. They ask follow-up questions based on those um, those answers I give. They skeptically push back at answers where they think I'm not being precise enough or where they think that maybe I don't have quite the knowledge that I should have to answer that question. Sources lie to you, sometimes they're mistaken, sometimes they're ignorant. Even in even in my own field of journalism, I, I think that you know, we teach them the skills to be able to interview and dialogue with these these, these creations that could yield better results. So, in th- in that sense, I'm very optimistic about what we're doing here yeah. because I think we're teaching those skills already.
2: And and I, I understand that you're designing a course for the fall as part of the um, uh, Eckerd Honor Seminar. And for those who don't know, the Eckerd Scholars is a highly selective honors program within the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the course and 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 um, how how you uh, predict? Uh, it, it, it'll go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this. I've been wanting to do an Eckerd seminar for about a decade now. Um, they are really some of our best students in arts and sciences. The class is called Digital Identity in an AI World. And it's built, these are going to be freshmen. And so there's a, there's a couple things I really want to accomplish with them. First of all, I'm excited to get them right when they're coming into Lehigh and starting to stretch their wings. You know, because if you think about where we, When you land at college, you are leaving the nest for the first time, you know, a, a, a hometown in a high school school system, you know, a family that you've been around for, for years. And you're really, for the first time, able to kind of explore who, you're, who you are and what your identity is. So this is a class of identity. Um, we're going to spend some time kind of unpacking a, a theories of social identity and what it means to construct the sense of self. We're going to talk a lot about social media and the way we behave online and offline, and um, in ways of projecting ourselves, but then the as we go, we're going to start injecting AI into this. You know, the idea of synthetic media. One of the things I, we're going to talk a lot about is this um, influencer that exists on Instagram. Her name is Michaela. She is the first um, synthetic music artist to sign a record deal. And she's been producing music since I think 2018 or so. Um, entirely fake. They make music videos with her. She's got auto-tuned sounding music to it. I don't particularly love it because it's not my style of music, but. Um, you know, she's got two two million Instagram followers, and my students roughly know who she is by the time they get to me as juniors and seniors because we've already talked about her. But you know, I, introducing this idea about synthetic actors in our media spaces, where all of a sudden, you know, the social networks we're living on is going to be increasingly populated with bots that look and sound and feel real. So, what does it mean to de- develop um, connection and relationships? Um, what does it mean to exist in spaces? where they're, they're increasingly living online. you know, And so what does it mean to exist in those spaces? And does it matter if all those people on the other end of those conversations are real people? Is there anything to be learned from those spaces? How do we behave in those spaces? How do we treat, do we have to think about how to treat bots ethically? My hope is that when we get out of that class, that those students will spend the next four years thinking about these questions, yeah. you know, about what it means to be me <laughs> and to have an education in a world that's increasingly synthetic, yeah. um, and at least in the online spaces and what kinds of offline impacts are there of those things? You know, I was just listening to a podcast this morning. They were asking a really interesting question of the host that says, um, you know, if I have, um, a, a partner with somebody where they were dating who is, um, having a, a, an online relationship with an AI and talking to it a lot, is that considered cheating? You know um, you know I would look at that as a issue as a, as being present all the time <laughs> but but we don't have language for those things right. and um, you know I think we're 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 living in just a time of incredible fast fast break change and so I don't think our standards and ideas of how we think about things like even basic relationships have been upgraded enough for a world where a lot of the interactions we might be having are not real
1: yeah
2: uh, two months ago I heard you compare chat GPT to the printing press and your notion then was, you know, it upended the, the, the work of some, some, you know, priests who had to write, you know, couldn't take a year to write Bibles, but, um, but life went on. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the same week that the the godfather of AI steps away from Google and, um, you know, things change so quickly, just since I heard you last speak two months ago, do you still feel the same way about, about generative AI and these tools? Yeah. Um,
0: so the printing press, uh, my students, they learn about Delati Scriptorum, which was written in 1490 or so. Um, it was written by a, a Catholic abbot who had his entire world changed by technology. Um, it's one of my best examples for this. Um, up until the time of Gutenberg's press, books were hand copied. They painstakingly hand copied them. I mean, the, 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 the Bible in English language has about 780,000 words. So you can imagine how long it might take to neatly hand transcribe that, right? Um, the Gutenberg Press comes along and takes what used to be a 10 to 15-year process to produce one book and can, can almost immediately stamp out 300 a month, right? And so there's an economic impact of that <laughs> because the Catholic Church was the sole uh, purveyor of the Bible industry, right? So they, they owned the production and the distribution end of it. Perfect monopoly in every sense of the word. And At the same time, these priests, I mean, this was their life work, right? I mean, they weren't seeing the money. I'm pretty sure they weren't seeing the money, right? But their identity was built around it. The printing press comes along and it completely disrupts that, right? So it destroys it. And so this, this, De scriptorum is this, this, the screed against um, the, the printing press as this tool, the devil. And so what often happens, and we see this time and again in communication technology, is you demonize the new technology, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not too harsh on him in some ways because, you know, there is something lost there that he finds important. And, and this is what kind of goes to what I was saying earlier is that the, the type of social disruptions that come with technology change are real. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to strike an overly optimistic tone on AI because I think we really are at the very beginning stages of its public deployment, um, and and as I said earlier, being unleashed on us. Yes, but I do think this will create new types of opportunities. And so, like going back to what I was just saying, that like one of those is that the skill of the future. Is dialogue and interviewing yes. that, that our students um, who are I, this is my shameless plug to study journalism because it is the major of the future. Um, we teach um, synthesizing st- complex streams of information and evaluating competing claims and figuring out what it all means for the purposes of telling stories, right? That so it, we teach skeptical interviewing, right? So those types of skills are going to be very very powerful um, in a world where we're going to increasingly ask machines to give us answers to things, but we don't. Think we can necessarily trust those answers we're going to have to still sift through those what we get from those machines and so there will be new types of skills and new types of jobs that will be built around it we will lose some things much like my friends in the newspaper industry lost their jobs right yes um, and there will be mourning and loss and i think how we deal with that will say a lot about a lot about us as a people but i i don't think we can fight the future i, I mean the Catholic. <laughs> As an addendum to that Delater scriptorum story, that Catholic monk decided that the only way to get his message out was to take his screed and take it to a printing press and print yeah. it up so he could distribute it widely. Because if he had to hand copy that thing, he would have it would have been dead on the vine, right? right. So yes. so we still have to figure out how to harness the new in service of the old. So I think that the, the question I would always ask about anything that's new technology, but particularly with AI, is what are we losing? What do we hope to gain? And how do we make sure that what we deploy yeah. is done with um, a sense of equity and fairness, um, and, and that we take care of the people who are left behind.
2: Is it fair to say that, you know, what you would tell our parents and our students or, or you know, the, the folks, people in the world listening right now to pay attention to dialogue and interview? Is that fair advice? Listening to
0: each other is a lost skill. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's not just it's not just journalism. It's, you know, I, I think that a lot of our... our Sole focus on digital technology sometimes disconnects us from each other in weird, weird ways. Yeah, um, and then you watch how people behave um, on places like Facebook. You know, and they don't, they don't hear each other. Yeah. And you know, we have to get better at that. In part because I think that if we if we have really bad process of AI, it's not going to lead to like Terminator style like visions of the future. It's actually going to be something worse. We're going to get something that's really boring and bad. You know, just um, subpar. And um, to get the most out of these technologies, we actually have to be curious and we have to ask questions and we have to hear and have to think critically about what we're getting. Because if we don't do that, um, I, I actually think the future is just going to be boring and bad, not, not necessarily destructive in that sense. Anything that's going to, to increase your sense of critical thinking and synthesis of information to ask questions um, and to, to hear. Um, that's, my, that's, I, that's why I really am bullish on the humanities and Lehigh in general.
2: Well, I hope you're right. I, I had my own doomsday moment this week. I can't attribute the quote to someone. I heard this interview in passing on on uh, BBC and the reporter was giving the interviewee a hard time about, come on, how bad can this be? Give me worst case scenario. And, mm-hmm. and the answer that, that, that he got back was, worst case scenario is that humanity is just a phase or a step in the evolution of intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's a doomsday moment. I'm going to have to keep that in the back of my mind as I'm interviewing Jeremy uh, later this week. Uh, uh, it doesn't sound like you, uh, you you comply to that notion, I guess, uh, necessarily. You're a little more optimistic. And I, as I said, I hope you're right.
0: There's always going to be winners and losers. Um, and so I do love our students because they are problem solvers, but they are also trying to think about how to do this in a way that's pro-social, You know, that, that it's good for society, not just good for my own bottom line or my own job prospects. Um, and to the degree we were able to do that here, I'm very optimistic.
2: Jeremy Littal, Associate Professor in the Department of Journalism and Communication, thank you so much for being with us today. I do have one final question, and I can't wait for your answer. It's an existential question that we ask all of our, uh, all of our guests on the Go-Getters podcast. It is not an original question. Uh, I will admit to taking it from another podcast host that I listen to, and, but the answers that we get are as brilliant as the answers that she gets. Jeremy, is there anything... You know for sure. Um,
0: that's a good one. You stumped a journalist with a question. That's really good. Yeah, I I, I do believe that love is more important than anything. That, that would be my answer. How we treat each other and how we are toward each other um, is more important than any successful thing I can do in life. And so to the degree that we... Um, treat each other with love and respect. I think that that, um, that will smooth over a lot of things that are bad in society,
2: including AI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for that answer. And thank you for all that you do for the Lehigh students of today and, and tomorrow and for our community. It's greatly appreciated. And thank you for enlightening us on a really, uh, really important topic. Much uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.
1: This has been GoGeathers, a podcast from Lehigh University hosted by Joe Buck, Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations. I'm Nadje Miller, a senior studying journalism with a minor in WGSS, Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies. One thing I would like to say was being a student part of LaTal's class truly allowed me to see the impacts of media on our society. And more than you may think, from echo chambers to how we surround ourselves through social media, I recommend signing up for his newsletter, The Unraveling, that talks more about this topic. Special thanks to producer Kate Rokuya, Media Production Specialist, Jared Brown, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations. Go inside the episode at lehigh.edu slash gogetters to learn more about Professor Latal's work with digital media and journalism at Lehigh University, as well as being the public voice in an ongoing conversation about Generative Artificial Intelligence. Don't forget to subscribe to GoGetters on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast of choice. And take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can find us.